Uh, We are in our Summer Psalm series. We've come to Psalm number 19 um, this morning, which is one of my favorite psalms. It is actually a psalm that C.S. Lewis called maybe the greatest psalm and perhaps the greatest lyric in the whole world. Um, So that's a little bit intimidating to approach and certainly can't improve on that, but it is... uh, it really is a wonderful, um, poetic piece of writing that is very stimulating and encouraging to us um, that we have to look at today. So uh, I'm going to just read it uh, and pray, and then uh, we will jump right in. This is Psalm 19 to the choir master, and it's a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent of hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Dear Father, indeed, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts uh, be pleasing in your sight. And again, we ask that you would send your spirit, um, that you would uh, help these wonderful truths that you have given us to sink deeply into our hearts. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I have one of my favorite possessions that I own is a piece of furniture. Um, And if, if you ever come over to my house, we'd love to have you over to my house. I would be happy to show it to you as sitting in our den. It's a big wooden watchmaker's uh, desk bench thing that belonged to my grandfather uh, in West Virginia. Uh, I remember it was in their house growing up. It was at the top of the stairs in the playroom, and it's kind of, it's probably about a hundred, hundred-ish years old by now, but it's a, it's a tall desk about this high with room for your legs, and it's got all kinds of tiny little drawers in it all the way across and all the way down. And it had all of these intricate tools in it that my granddad, who was his first job, he had gone to watchmaking school um, and would he would sit at this desk and he would do all the little gears and he would make watches with it. But in my memory, um, this is the kind of thing that was there. And it was always really cool, mostly because it was also where he kept his shotgun shells. So we would we would go through the drawers and find things and pull them out and, you know, what is this, whatever. I uh, had all kind of junk all over it. And then when my grandfather passed away, that out of, out of all the grandkids, 
Uh, I'm incredibly grateful. I don't know how I ended up getting it, but I got this piece of furniture. And also thanks to my wife, whose determination to fit it into our van with all four of our kids and all of our luggage all the way from West Virginia to St. Louis at the time. I uh, wouldn't have, have, I was ready to give up long before that. But uh, we ended up, because it was cool, we had this really special uh, piece of furniture. But like the more that I've thought back over it, one of the sad parts about it is that there are all these tools that go with it. There are all these compartments, which are obviously cool. And they had a special sentimental spot in my memory. But I didn't know what they were. Uh, I didn't really know how they worked. And one of, the, one of my biggest regrets about this whole thing is I never actually asked my grandfather to go to the desk and to show me through and explain from his perspective, what all of this is about. And that's just, that's kind of been an illustration to me um, of how easy it is to have really wonderful things that we know are cool and that they occupy a special place to us, but we really don't have a full appreciation of the true value of the thing that we have, especially when there's not the opportunity of the one who made it and who used it to actually comment on it and to bring to bring us in to show what, why this thing is so special. And I really think this is the thrust of this psalm, uh, what we've got, is that God is giving us a psalm, um, and it has, there's a lot of interesting stuff we could talk about. We could talk about how God reveals himself through general revelation and special revelation and such like that. We can have philosophical arguments and stuff like that, and those are relevant to this. But I think the real heart behind this is that it is taking us It is taking us into these very plain gifts that God has given us on a daily basis, Uh, specifically his creation and his word, that are so wonderfully valuable. And we recognize that to some extent. But they they tend to be those kinds of things. They are so valuable and so day-to-day at the same time. I think we often lack the full appreciation of what we actually have. Um, that this gift that is so wonderful becomes so commonplace, we often tend to look past it um, and not love it. And so this is a psalm that is gathering us, rather than making an argument, it is, tra- it is gathering us into a song of praise that is stirring into our hearts, that is reminding us from God's perspective who gave these gifts of why they are so good, and it is, it is something that is forming us so that we actually might be able to express Uh, the same kind of thanks and thanksgiving and appreciation that God has uh, for these things. So we're going to look at this in three points, and it really breaks down through um, the passage, breaks down very neatly into these three points. First, um, we're going to look at uh, the creation um, and that God is sharing us his perspective of the creation. Uh, And then we're going to look at his word. And then finally, we're going to look at his grace. Um, And this... This is what he, he, he wants to share in his love of these things with us as we jump into them. Uh, so first, let's look at the creation. It's the first thing that jumps out. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. It is these just these over and abundant uh, poetic words to describe um, the creation. And the first thing that jumps off the page, it comes from this, from the first verse that we might, that we expect. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. And that is, in the very first get-go, then God is establishing that we have these wonderful things, but he's establishing himself as the author of them. 
that these are his handiwork, that he made them and he made them intentionally. And well, the first reason that they are valuable is because he did make them and he, he put, poured his creativity in them. And when we look at the world, we can look at all kinds of things. And we can observe, observe the cause and effect of, of physics and how you know, one thing causes one thing to go over here and how that reacts and things to go, to go here. And we can trace those back. I mean, we can look at DNA and see how like traits have been passed on um, through family and people and biology. And we can look at brain science and how you know, our, the decisions that we make, you know, the things that are firing in our brains, we can observe all these things of what goes on. But there is what this is poor, what this is speaking to us is that behind all of this stuff is that this is, this is a, it's like a craftsman who is at work, who is masterfully skilled and for the joy of this thing that he is displaying these aspects about himself through the creation. So in the first place is showing us from the creation that this is just establishing that it is uh, part of his handiwork. But the interesting thing about this, and almost all the commentators point this out, is that what it actually does, that God is only mentioned in the first verse, really. He's kind of implied through the rest of it. But rather than continue to talk about God and what his character is like and how this aspect reveals this aspect of his character, it actually turns our attention to the creation itself. It's like it acknowledges God and then it's moving and having these songs of praise and um, is talking about mostly the lights in the heavens and how big and wonderful they are. And by extension, I think he's talking about the whole creation. But he's, he's turning our eyes to look at these things in particular and take notice of them. And that the creation itself is something that it is just always, it has this intrinsic value to it. Like it, just by virtue of what it is and how it works, it is beautiful, uh, it is creative, it is wonderful, and it is shaping us as Christians to not skip past the creation and look directly to God himself. Yes, it wants us to look at God himself. It said that in the very beginning, that he is the author and he is... Everything is his handiwork, and it is about worship of him and not worship of the creation itself. But it is doing that through actually turning us towards the creation, to enjoy the creation, to explore the creation, um, to find out what it is all about, to revel in its creativity and all these kinds of things. Um, In this, I'll point this out, you'll, you'll never... I apologize for this. You might never look at the sun the same way again. But what, but what he is doing in here, there's two options um, of what scholars debate what's happening when the sun goes out of this tent and goes through the, um, through the heavens. Uh, one is that this is a bridegroom who is coming, waking up out of his tent and he's looking to the rest of the day to where uh, the, the wedding feast is going to be. And so he's, he is uh, going through his day of joy of anticipation. Uh, the other option... Uh, which I think is more likely is almost the opposite, that this is the day after, and the son who has just had his wedding feast is now going about his day in full joy and enthusiasm, uh, feeling good and uh, ready to do what he's got to do um, the day after. Either way, this this is a very poetic and almost sensual way of saying that what is happening in creation is very, very, very wonderful. That even the pathway of the sun through the sky, it is proclaiming far more than just the mechanics. It is proclaiming something about love. 
It is proclaiming something about closeness. It is proclaiming something about the God's intimate delight in the things that he has made. And so for us, I think this challenges us in, um, in a few, we could take this in a few directions. There's just a couple ways I want to point out of how this actually does challenge us. On the one sense, if we were reading this in the ancient world, then our temptation would be to worship the creation itself um, as opposed to the creator. This, the theme of idolatry comes up again and again and again, that why do you worship the things that are created when the things that were created were actually given to you as a good gift that come from somewhere else? It's not just about them, but it points um, beyond them in some way. And they're all kind, we do not have to look far. That might be, not be our exact situation, but we do not have to look far to see how the creation to us can very easily seem to be about itself. Um, rather than about the one it points to. In the way that we eat, in the pleasures that we find, in our sexuality, um, in our desires, all of these kinds of things, that it is the thing itself that is going to satisfy. That this thing is wonderful because it is wonderful in its own right, that this is the end. And we must have this. And if we don't have this, then we will end up unfulfilled in some way. But there's another thing as well. As this is turning us to pay attention to the creation, it is affirming us that we are actually a people that is made for the physical life of the things of the world. That the creation is not just some circumstance that we are playing with through which that we are turned towards faith in Jesus and then we move on so we can do these spiritual things. Of course, it is calling us to faith in Jesus and of course, it is causing us to look to God But how we do that is by actually enjoying and doing business with the creation itself. That our daily lives, like how we care for it, uh, our economies, economics, all of these things, this is the arena in which the life of faith is lived out. That the creation itself, it is not just there to be used for our benefit. It is not just there to be ignored. It is not just there... Um, to be disregarded or only valued as far as what it can give to us. It has value on its own. And we, as a part of the creation, are called to live in it in praise, to nurture it as fellow worshipers with the creation of God himself. All of life is oriented towards God in praise. And what I'm not saying, I'm not making a political statement on what the EPA should do or whatever that. But we have to recognize that even caring for the environment is something that is absolutely necessary to the Christian calling. And that we are a people of the creation. We are made to delight in it. We are made to use it not just to abuse it or to expend it for our own benefit, but actually to nurture it with its rules, observing the way that it was made so that it can be brought to its fullest extent. That life in the world is about love and praise of all of these things, not just the functions of them. I would love to talk about that on end. Um, And that is a big and a wide calling that, that extends to all of us. But God is showing us the wonderful of his creation and he is situating us in it. But you'll notice he doesn't stop there. Like, in a sense, he's starting with a wide net. And he is catching us all and, you know, it is... Most all of us would in here would look at the creation and we would say, this is so wonderful and this is value, valuable and we love it and want to spend time with it, um, you know, in various ways according to our own personalities. 
But then it's like he just drops the subject completely and then starts towards talking about God's law. And there's been some debate, could this have been like two psalms like put together? Like what's the deal with this, uh, with this change in subject? And really it doesn't matter because this is, this is what we have is the songbook that was put into the songbook of Israel that is there for our guidance. Um, and it is what it is exactly how God intended it to be. But I think that it is very closely connected, actually, and that as God is sharing with us the beauty of his creation and how he reveals himself through the creation, he's also doing the same thing through his law. Uh, But look at these words. We get all of these. um, He uses, in a very poetic way, a lot of ways to describe uh, what the law is. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's like a general term for um, the teaching of God, uh, the testimony of the Lord is sure, like giving the, the these are like uh, the Ten Commandments on, that are written on stone is the word behind it, showing the permanence um, and the immovability of this testimony. Uh, the precepts of the Lord, uh, his commandments, the, the fear of the Lord, the fear that is required of us for the Lord, um, his rules, like his, which it gives a, a judicial imagery behind it, the things he decides, this is right, this is not right. So he's using, like a true poet, all of these kind of similes that are getting at this. This is the whole span of God's teaching, every aspect of it, of how he communicates himself, the rules that he comes up with, um, the do's, the don't do's, uh, the story of it. This is an all-encompassing thing. And then, But the things that he's saying about them is that they are just so wonderful. They are perfect. They are sure. Um, they make us, they uh, write pure. There's no corruption in them. Absolutely nothing that is treated like this is just the most wonderful thing that we have. Uh, that is God's law. And I don't know if it strikes you when uh, every time I read this, I have this, um, this kind of thought, like uh, I get it. I get that it is wonderful that God has, has so out of mercy to us, moved towards us and given us his law to reveal himself through it. But I also would be lying if I said every time I sat down and read it, I felt like this is just the best thing ever. Like life has returned to me, you know. Um, I, it just doesn't always feel like that. Um, and certainly it is an aspirational thing that it is showing us the true value. And part of by describing it this way is calling us to it. But it really is challenging to us in a lot of ways. And I wanted to say two things about it. Um, two aspects. Again, we could unpack all of these and go in a lot of different directions, but I think these are very relevant to us as to why it is so wonderful and why sometimes um, it just doesn't seem to have the effect uh, on us that we wish that it did. One is in all of these, the, this theme is that it is that this is an immovable for all people, all times, that it is absolutely dependable, it is good, and it is true. It is the kind of thing that never goes out of style. It is the kind of thing that cultures can come and go, and it still speaks the truth exactly how God wants it to, and it is absolutely dependable. And I think when we look at it now, it is very difficult to look at it through a cultural vantage point, because it looks like some things go out of fashion, and they go out of date, or they're not relevant to us anymore, Um, and it can bring up a lot of questions in our mind about it. I'll quote Tim Keller, who said it really well, that one of the good things about it is that anything that is not eternal is eternally out of date. And that just by approaching it that way, there's a sense in which if we turn, you know, against the culture of our parents and say, this is, this is out of date, now we are at the right 
we are at the right spot. Our children will do the same thing to us. And it can become this never-ending cycle of everyone's out of date between, uh, because of some vantage point. But God is saying that despite all of, that, all of that, we've actually been giving something that is permanent. And we might not always like what it says. It might not always seem relevant, but different from all of the other things that we have uh, to put our trust in, that this is actually something that is eternal. It is actually something that is incorruptible. There's no politics around it um, that is shaping it in one way or the other. It is absolutely dependable. And in saying that, it would be remiss if we have to mention that one of the challenges, I think, especially is for me, and I think it is for a lot of us, is that when we look at how it has been treated uh, in the past and now when we look to the future, is that uh, the interpretations of it at times have changed. And we have seen it abused in a lot of ways that has really undermined our confidence in it. And one of the worst examples, and this has come, this came up this week, um, and there's a little, several of you, we're in a, a, a book reading by, uh, about the book The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby, which is looking at the history of racism in um, the American church. And he told the story of, in 1915, that a Methodist minister and 19 people climbed to the top of Stone Mountain in Georgia and burned a cross, um, and they set up a stone memorial with a sword and a flag and a Bible that was open to Romans chapter 12. And after doing some research, it was all under this narrative is that God calls us to make our bodies living sacrifices, which is how the chapter starts, and that this was a method of calling people into action. Um, to support the KKK and their agenda. There has hardly been anything that has been more damaging, I think, to the witness of the Christian church as things like this, as where the Bible has been used uh, for very bad ends. But the irony of this is that if we read further in Romans chapter 12, it goes from there, and then it starts talking about the whole body of Christ and how every part of the body is valuable and then it starts unpacking the marks of the true Christian, which are outdoing one another and showing honor, of not looking at ourselves more highly than we ought to, and above all, being eager to pour ourselves out in love for one another. And what I'm saying is, is that the advantage of having the text, the advantage of having the thing that we can all gather around that is permanent at all times, it is always speaking the truth, no matter how it has been used in this place or in that place. And that even though with the gross atrocities of what has been said, as that Bible was laying open on that altar, it kept saying, outdo one another in loving each other. Outdo one another in honoring each other. And that the text provides us with the permanent thing that is always convicting us. It goes ahead of us. It is God's means where we have a dependable um, access to the truth, no matter what is going on at our current moment. Uh, there There is great good in having a dependable revelation of God in the law. Another thing I want to point out, though, with this is that one of the things you might not notice uh, anytime you are reading through here, um, which is you don't see it printed in your bulletin, but in verse 7 where it says the law of the Lord is perfect, if you look at it in your Bibles, the Lord is probably capitalized in all caps. 
Whenever you see Lord capitalized in your Bible, that this is not the generic name for God. This is the covenant name for God that he revealed um, to his chosen people that was only for them. That wasn't the same name that was used in the beginning when he's talking, when God's talking about the creation. And then when we get down to the law, God's personal revelation of his will um, through the Bible, through all of his teaching, all of a sudden he changes it and he makes it very, very personal to the one who is reading it. And here's the thing. It is not promoting, as we often might think, that what we have to have is the proper discipline of the activity of sitting down and reading the Bible and having all of the feels through it that we think that we should feel. This is not what this is promoting and talking about. What it is saying is that through this word, these are not just rules. These are not just things that are happening. But this is God himself giving himself to his covenant people in actuality and in truth. That it is through the Bible we are pushed to engage with the very person of God. That he has so bound himself with this word. And this is, in fact, this is why the Bible is trustworthy in, in the first place. Like, we're going to have all kinds of arguments about why, you know, you know, which are helpful apologetic reasons about why the Bible is true. But at the end of the day, it is because God stands behind it. Because he has given it to us. He is the one that stands behind it. He accomplishes what he wants through it. And why this is so valuable is because the thing that is broad and wonderful that started with the creation is now focused and that this majesty actually has a face. This is a real person who has given himself in love for his people. And that is why it is so refreshing because it is from him that all the source of life comes. It is from him that true wisdom comes. It is from him that stability comes throughout all times and all places. The law of God is a wonderful treasure. It is a wonderful thing that we have been given um, that calls out to us to enjoy. Uh, The third point is his grace. And as you can anticipate, this is kind of bringing us into a point of crisis that the psalmist actually starts to recognize. So we get through those things. We get his revelation through the heavens. We get his revelation through the word. And then what starts to happen? Then the servant starts to say, who can discern his errors and declare me innocent from hidden faults? Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And only then shall I be blameless and innocent of great transgression. If we're taking these gifts of God, both the creation and particularly his law, for what they actually are, when our appreciation grows uh, to them in the way that God would have us, it puts us into a very difficult spot. And that whereas the lenses are narrowly focus, are focusing us down uh, from the heavens to the person, the person of God, uh, it becomes like, you know those little, uh, I think they're makeup mirrors, you know those, like, they're like super magnifying glasses that you might find on your uh, bathroom counter or something, you know, that you can get look up real close to the things that are on your face. Um, and I've looked into those a couple times and didn't really like it. Like, there's a lot of junk going on in there, like, when you, when you get so close. And there's such a thing as too close. So when you get too close, stuff starts to come out. And I would just assume not have one. <laughs> would just assume go about my way, merry way and not know what's actually there. And the law is doing that. 
And this last point of what God is wanting us to do is to actually have an, an appreciation of the thing that is the most scary. And that it peers into our lives and it starts to reveal things about us that we might not like to see otherwise. And it already it can reveal all kinds of things. It reveals our desire for to use the creation for our own benefit rather than to, um, to steward it. I mean, if you look at my life again, you, you would think that my ultimate goal in life is to have all work done and out of the way, quiet so I can sit on the couch and watch Netflix. Like, this is the highest, like, ambition of life. Um, and it's a poor excuse for what it means to be human. Like, it starts to highlight these things. It starts to highlight these attitudes. It starts to highlight a desire to defend myself rather than to engage with God and to allow Him to poke around and show what is actually in there. The law catches us all. It is a bright light of revelation that God actually is handing us to us as a gift. It is a very good thing. And it is because, again, if we look through all of this, the language that he is using, where he says, declare me uh, innocent of hidden faults, he starts out in this way that is actually looking to God to be the protector from these faults. Um, in this, in verse 14, he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. This is priestly language. This is what it means to be accepted by a priest into the people of God because of the offering that was given. And again, uh, when he refers, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, this word redeemer is the word for a next of kin who when a family member would get themselves in trouble that they couldn't get out of would then offer the offering on their behalf in order to redeem them out of bondage. The lens through which that the writer is looking at this is very much through the grace and mercy of God that is fully expressed in Jesus Christ, who is the full sacrifice for our sins, who is the full access before the Father to participate with him, to learn about his wisdom without the condemnation, but in hope and joy of the life that he can give. This is a very priestly thing. And this is the mercy of God, is that stuff in there that it wants to highlight, is that when he shines the light down into there and can see, I see who you actually are in both the dignity of the created sense of how I made you and in the, and the depravity, the motivations of our heart of how we so often deviate from what is good that he can see both of them side by side and through Jesus to welcome us to him, to make us right, and to send us back out in the same joy and love of living in his creation and living, us, living under his law even though we don't deserve it. It is through grace that there is actual freedom. Every one of us has that impulse desire for, the, for those secret things of our hearts not to be exposed. And just like a, I've had this happen before, where I've had something lodged in my foot um, that was hard to get out, and there's that thought, if I ignore this and just go about my day, it'll probably take care of itself. Like, you ever have that thought? It never works. It is the mercy of God that he actually shows ourselves to us so that he can also shower us with his grace. 
Um, I'm going to use one example to close us with um, that's always stuck out to me. Um, there's a book called Dangerous Calling by Paul Tripp, um, where he kind of he's talking about the pastorate and how difficult it is. And he tells a story uh, humbly about his own marriage and how for a lot of his life was characterized by know-it-allism, of using the Bible as a way of promoting himself, always having the right answer, that kind of thing. And he also had a temper. Um, that would come out regularly. And his wife, again and again and again, would bring this up and say, I think you need to pay attention to this. This is hurting you, it is hurting me, and it's hurting our marriage. And he ignored it for a long time, and then in the mercy of God, actually brought himself, brought him to the point of conviction where he could say, am I really like that? Like, is this what I'm really like? At home, is this actually the condition of my heart? And in the light of the gospel and the mercy that was, that was brought by the Holy Spirit, that the truth was actually able to come out and say, yes, it is. And it was at that point that the true healing actually came, where grace became sweet, where there was no, there was freedom, there was actually room to relate to his spouse in a way that had not for a long time is the mercy of grace. So what I want to leave us with, um, that is always a convicting example to me when I look at, ask my, you know, in my own life, like, am I really like that? Like, is this what, is this actually the truth about who I am? What this is inviting us in the end is to actually go there with Jesus, the one who is the great sacrifice for our sins to walk with him into those dark places and say you can shine the light on me there but you will go with me and you will be there every step of the way and through that there's great freedom let me pray for us father this these are wonderful words this is a wonderful poem that is um, true and inspired by your spirit but father how much do we need you to take these words and to reach down into those dark places of our hearts and pull them out so that your grace could actually have a way with us and bring us to the freedom that we are so afraid to have. I ask for all of us that you would have the mercy to do just that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.